Thanks for joining us on the New Beginnings Podcast, where our goal is to help people connect with Christ. We hope you enjoy listening. Part three of a series called The Million Dollar Question. This is what I find fascinating about the Bible is that in the Bible, God asks questions. And the, and the fact that he, because questions are powerful, we talked about that on week one, that there's just something powerful about questions that when you even ask yourself the right question at the right time, God is able to do things in your life. And when God asks a question, it's even a bigger deal. And so you've got to think that anytime God is willing to ask a question, or put it like this, anytime an all-knowing being asks a question, it must be significant because it's not that he lacks information, but it's that the person on the other end somehow lacks perspective, that they're missing something. And so throughout the Bible, God just will get into a dialogue or a conversation or into an experience with a human being and then bam, drop this question, this penetrating, powerful question. And for them, it is the million dollar question, which, which, which also leads me to this right here. When you pray and when you walk with God, what is God asking you? Because if God continually asks questions to people, to men and women throughout the scripture, then as he speaks to us, occasionally he should be asking us questions. And so as you pray, be on the lookout, be on the listen out for what is God asking me. And so today I want to look at a fascinating story. If you have your Bible, go to Isaiah chapter 6. Everybody say Isaiah. Now, if you don't know, because Isaiah is one of those places. So if you, if you got your Bible and you're like, okay, where's Isaiah? Like, go to the middle, you'll find Psalms, and then turn right. And it's really the second biggest book of the Bible. Isaiah is huge. Um, Isaiah is called, like, I don't know if you know this, but in the Bible, the Bible's not laid out chronologically in order. It's laid out categorically. And so Isaiah is the first of what we call the prophets. And there's two sets of prophets. Everybody say major prophets. Everybody say minor prophets. So the first four dudes are major prophets. And I asked, I asked my uh, theology professor one time, I said, hey, what's the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet? He goes, it's simple. They just wrote more. Their book is bigger. And so that's it. And Isaiah has this huge, massive book. And it's, it's fascinating. So, but you have to think this. Isaiah is not just a bunch of writings. Isaiah was a real dude. He actually started speaking on behalf of God during the reign of a king named Uzziah. Everybody say Uzziah. So Uzziah was a king. And then basically he started... Let me tell you about him real quick. So Uzziah, in his early career as a king, honored God. Later in his life, he totally dishonored and disobeyed God. And then he got leprosy and died. So Isaiah shows up at the end of his life, as we'll see in a second. But then he goes on to prophesy for the span of really five kings. The next three kings are are, are really, really good. Isaiah has an incredible impact. um, Literally like saves the people of Israel a couple of times. Because of what he spoke on behalf of God. And then at the end, there was this wicked king named Manasseh. Everybody say Manasseh. And Manasseh cut him in half. Killed him, literally. So like when you read the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews 11 talks about the great men and women of faith throughout the Bible. It goes through and it lists some by name, but then it just starts firing off stuff. And it says, and though, and there was one that was cut asunder. Yeah, that was Isaiah. And so that's a bad ending to your life, but that's how committed and devoted he was to who God was. And maybe when you think about how he died, you would think, why would he be willing to go that far for what he believed? And you'll see why today. Because the beginning of Isaiah's ministry really begins with a fascinating experience and a life-changing experience. And it's the type of experience that I pray. People ask me all the time, how do you get a person to go from here to here, from no faith to faith in God, or from here to here in their relationship with God? And I say, I don't know, but if I knew 
how it, I promise I'd put it in the coffee. Y'all would be, I would be, I'd be Jedi mind tricking y'all. I'd be doing, if I had the secret sauce, the solution, the trick, the way, trust me, I'd be like a drug dealer. I'd just be dishing it out. I don't know how to manufacture this experience, but I pray that you all have an experience like this at some point because this is the life-changing experience where you begin to know a little bit more about who God is in light of that, who you are, and how this all thing really comes together. So Isaiah chapter 6, are you ready to read? Fascinating story here. The Bible says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, remember that's leprosy guy, in the year that he died, I saw the Lord, meaning I had a vision. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, these angels, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, which I thought, how do they fly if they can't see where they're going? With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, literally is like there's a, there's, a, there's a throne high and lifted up, and he's in a temple, and, he, and he's seeing angels fly around, and the angels call to one another and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, not the voice of God, just the voice of the angels, the doorpost door and the thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried. I'm ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. This is Isaiah speaking now. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the angels flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs or with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord. So before it was the angel speaking, but now it's God speaking. And God speaks. And it sounds like he's just talking out loud in a big room. He's not directly talking to anybody. He's just speaking out loud. And he says, this is the million dollar question. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah responds and says, here I am. Send me. What an incredible story. How many of you have ever heard this story before? My, my wife, we were talking about it, and there, apparently there's this great song back in maybe the 80s, and it was this really powerful song that kind of described this vision that he has in Isaiah chapter 6. And so what I want to show you today is that this, this vision is crazy sounding. It's over the top. It's, but I want, to, I want to point on three things that this really shows you. That this vision, if you had a vision that was even similar or close to or, or on a scale back at least, it would show you three really, really, really big ideas that are huge life changing ideas and it's out of these three huge ideas that God drops the million dollar question the, the first thing that you have to notice about it is this is that in this vision you figure out that God is incomprehensibly glorious like when you see the description, he's like, there's a, there's, a, there's a throne, and he's high and lifted up. It's not like a, it's not like a little throne. It's, he's not even on par with the rest of the room. It, it's high and lifted up. And then he's got a, he's got a robe, which just sounds dope. And so, because you know, and, and the robe has a train, and the train of his robe fills the temple. Girls, how many know when you do your wedding, and you think about your dress, and your big old awesome poofy white dress, and you got bridesmaids that are dedicated just to making sure that thing is shifted around? and not getting hung up on something and you think man how how girls you, you, you would go bananas if you thought what if the train of my robe filled the sanctuary where the, the... it's my day you know so 
so, so God's got a robe and he's a king sitting on a throne and his robe is just so dope. And his own robe sucks up the whole room. That's how, and this is just a description. And then angels fly around and just sing, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so we learn that God is incomprehensibly glorious. And, and, and the angels sing a word. That, and it's a word that you need to understand. Everybody say Holy. The word holy is this word that they use over and over and over again. And it seems they can just keep singing this song for bygone eternity and still never fully get to the end of all that God is because God is just so holy. He's so big. He's so other. He's so glorious. He's magnificent. He's got splendor. He's just, he is God. He is incomprehensibly glorious. So this word holy, literally in in one sense, the word holy means this, is that he is without error. He's, he's got no flaw. There is no, God has never had a wrong thought. God has never made a wrong deed. God has never had a wrong motive. There has never been some type of impurity in him or about him. He is completely without error. But, but it's more than just that. Because like, you know, like the angels are flying around and they're not a part of sinful man. They're not a part of fallen angels and they, they can't be in the presence of God and have sin. So they're kind of without error too. So it's not that he's just, it's not that he's just without error. It's that he is without equal. Meaning like there is nothing else in this universe that you can think about that somehow compares to who God is. There's nothing else, like, like this is why in Deuteronomy, God said, I looked around and by myself I saw no other. Meaning like there was nothing else that could even remotely come close to comparing to who I am. So it's kind of like saying like this, is that God is not the highest in a class. He is in a class all by himself. There there ain't nothing you can, so when you read the Bible, the prophets and the teachers of the law and all these people would try to describe who God was or even even the the writers would try to describe Jesus and all and they'd come up with this stuff. They're like, well, he's, he's he's like a wind, but, but he ain't wind, and he's like a fire, but he's, he's not fire, and, he's, but, but, and, there, and there's like a tabernacle, and there, there's like a box, and then there's a temple, and then there's, a, and there's smoke, and there's a cloud, and there's a thing, and there, but, he's not, but he's like those things, but he is none of those things, because you, you can't, I don't even know what God is. He's just holy, which this is the real word, holy. Holy really means other. Everybody say other. Meaning whatever you think God is, the fire, the wind, the earth, the rain, the temple, the tabernacle, he's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king. No, he's a shepherd, he's a door, he's the light, but he's not light, but you're holy. You are something other than anything I can quite, because nothing that I say, it just partially begins to describe kind of what might be, but it it doesn't even do it justice. He is Holy. And then here's the fascinating part. In the Hebrew language, they had no exclamation point. So when we would say, you know, you ever get away with this when you do texting? You got to be careful when you text, when you do emails. And there's rules to this. And I broke a rule one time. One time, I, I was emailing a, a response to somebody that it was, had been kind of critical of me. And, and, and I just put thanks. But I accidentally put it in all caps. And I didn't know that was like, thanks or or thanks. I don't even know what that means really. And, and so, so, so you gotta be careful when you text that you don't put the wrong, you know, that's why emoji cons are so great. Cause nobody, I can say anything. And if I put a happy face on that, you can't be mad at me. Is that, that's how that works, right? You know, just, just, you gotta put something happy on it. If I, if I, if I put a happy face, it's not mean. And so anyway, I put all caps on it or so when you put, but when you put an exclamation point, I feel like somebody's shouting at me. Do you ever feel like that? Like it's, it's not just thanks. You put a thanks, you know, stop yelling at me. And 
They didn't have exclamation points in the Hebrew language. And so what they would do is, is that they wanted to emphasize a word. They just say it twice. So think about Jesus when he would speak. He would say, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you. And he was trying to say, hey, y'all need to, somebody needs to write this down. This is big. I'm about to drop on y'all. He would say, truly, truly, I say unto you, or different types of verse of the Old Testament, you will see them double down on a word. But in this instance, they don't double down on a word. They triple down on the word. Meaning like you cannot put any greater emphasis about what I'm saying than what is, meaning God is more holy than holiness can be. It's just holy. And so well, let, me, let, me, let me describe the God and the glory and the holy. So like one of the things about God is this, is that God is, is, is in, in the sense of God's not smart. God is all-knowing. This is what we call when we say it, God is omniscient. Does that make sense? It, it means that literally God knows all things. Because like, I want you to realize like, this is important when it comes to like, the commands of God. Because some of you kick back against the commands of God. And sometimes you think you're smarter than God. Or it's like, well, that's for other people. Or that's, that's for old people. Or that's for a long time ago or whatever. And you, you kick against the commands of God as if they're just an idea. As if it's like, well, you, maybe. It's not, it, the commands of God are not the suggestions of God. They're the commands of God. And when God speaks, remember God speaks from the ability to know all things. So it's not that God's just saying, hey, this is some kind of good advice. You might want to follow this. No, no, he's saying, I know all things. As a matter of fact, even if I just spoke it, it would become true because I'm God. I know all things. So like God's never had a thought. God's never wondered. God has never reasoned. It has never occurred to God. You know, like we do that all the time. You're like, you know what? I just, I was thinking the other day, I had like the coolest idea. God's never had a cool idea. How can you have a cool idea? He knows all things. It's never occurred. You know what? It dawned on me. It's never dawned on God. God never was like, man, I, the, the light bulb on top of his cartoonness would have never, it would have never turned on. He knows all things. And so when God speaks a command, don't take it as a suggestion. Speak it as the one who knows all things. Like here's another one. God is not strong. Like God does not have strength. God is all powerful. Does that make sense? This is what we call his omnipotence. He is omnipotent, meaning he has all power. And so it, literally, God does not have to do push-ups to lift things. Does that make sense? As a matter of fact, let me put it like this. God doesn't have to do anything to do everything. He just think it, say it, speak it. This is why you can't even fathom. And the writers of the Bible said he just, he just looked into a universe and said, let there be light. And then bam, light began to expand. And that's just the way that it is because God doesn't have to do anything to do everything. He just is. He is all powerful. He, here's another one. He's omnipresent. Like some of y'all pray. You're like, God, please show up in my situation. God, please come and do this. God, God's already there. God has never tried to travel. God's never walked anywhere. He's never had to take a boat, an airplane, a, a, none, none of that stuff. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word is shah. He just shamas. It literally means he just, he's there. He is always there. As a matter of fact, put it this way. He fills all things. And when you start putting together the fact that God is all-knowing and all-powerful and he fills all things and he is without error and he is without equal, that literally, like, like here's another one. It's called the immutability of God. Have you ever heard of that term before? It's just a fancy term for saying this, is that God cannot change. And that seems small on something. Let me tell you that's good for you. Number one is this, is God is kind. And if he changed... He would be unkind, and then that would be very bad for us. So that's good on one sense. But in the other sense, in terms of his glory and his holy and his, his, his divinity and his godness. Can I say godness? Is that a word? Was made up a word? In his godness, the reason why God can't change is because anything that can change could get better, and God can't get better because he's already best. He is unchanging. 
And all of this stuff is what he's starting to get a glimpse of in Isaiah chapter 6 where he says, man, he's just got a big throne and his robe fills up the whole place and angels go about singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And what he's trying to get a glimpse of is that God is wonderfully glorious and holy and majestic and magnificent. And at some point in your life, you need to come to that same conclusion too. Now, here's the second part of the vision though is that in response to this vision, look, I'll read it again for you. The Bible says this. The Bible says that at the sound of the voices calling holy, holy, holy is the Lord, that literally the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the whole place was filled with smoke. Now that should freak you out. How many of y'all like earthquakes and you like the idea of things shaking around you that you're in control? No, it's a weird, eerie feeling to not be in control and all of a sudden smoke fills up and you're like, it's earthquake and fire, I need to get out of here. And so... You would be afraid, and I want you to understand what's going on to me. Verse number five is so key to understanding this, is Isaiah's response to the glory and the holiness of God was not wow. You're not going to like this part. Let me say it again. The response to the wonder and the glory and the holiness of God was not wow. I am in awe of him. It was, let me put it bluntly, it was oh crap. Oh no. His response was not, wow, it was woe. And it was, woe is me, I am ruined. I am lost. The second part of the vision that you see when you clearly see who God is, is this right here, is that you get this understanding that mankind is sinfully lost. His response to the glory and wonder and majesty of God was not, oh, wow, that's cool, you're really great, God, good for you. It was, oh crap, I'm screwed. Oh crap, I'm in so much trouble. I am now painfully aware of how wretched I am in the sight of his glory and his holy and his wonder. Woe is me, I am lost, I am ruined, I am a man of unclean lips, I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips, oh my gosh. And here's what you need to know, is you need to know that you, apart from Christ, are sinfully lost. And it is good for you to come to that understanding. It is good for you to be aware that his holiness so supersedes who you, on your best day, the day where you thought you were the best Christian ever, or you were the kindest person ever. I did so many good deeds today. On your best day, you wouldn't last a second in the presence of God. Let me, let me describe to you what the Bible actually says about your lostness. Listen to what the Bible says, because it, it gets into these words. And it, just so you know, this is, not, this is not the Joel Osteen hour, so just, just bear with me here. Like Romans, Romans 11 says this. It says we are cut off from God. Romans 5 says we're condemned by God. James 4 says we are at odds with God. Ephesians 2 says we are separated from God. John 8 says we are slaves to sin. And 2 Timothy said we're dominated by Satan. Ephesians 2 says we are literally the children of wrath. John 3 says we are lovers of darkness. Romans 6 says we live in impurity and lawlessness. Romans 1 says that our hearts are sinful. How does that make you feel about yourself today? Woe is me. 
Apart from Christ, I am totally lost. I am sinfully lost. There is something like when you go back to the beginning in Genesis 3 and you look at what mankind did, they basically said, God, we got this. We don't want you. We believe we know what's best for our life and we're going to disobey and disregard your commands because we think you're holding back something good from us and we're going to do it our way. And they literally kicked it back and kicked away against the commands and the love and the blessing of God so that they might do their own thing. Just a few chapters later, they were so lost in their own sinfulness that God looked at them and said that in their heart, there is only... Only evil continually. So what is mankind left to itself in its sinful nature? It is only evil continually. It does not take you long to watch the news to figure that out. Go watch the 24-hour news cycle and you watch it long enough and you will see that mankind is depraved and sinfully and completely lost. And apart from Christ, we all are. We are a lost People. And I know the kickbacks. The kickbacks are stuff like this. But, but Todd, you don't, you don't really know, like, I'm a good person. Like, that's, you, I, I'm a really good person. I've got a lot of good deeds. And as if your mind, you think that somehow deeds is the payment for your wretched sinfulness. It's not the payment. Like, that's not what does it. That, that's not how this works. It's, that would be like going to the gas station and trying to buy gas with hugs. Your good deeds don't pay the price. The monetary units don't measure up. The only thing that would cover your sins would be sinless blood. So it doesn't, and some of you, I know how it is too, you're like, but, but Todd, like compared to other people, I'm not that bad. As if God were a teacher who had a bunch of dumb students that thought, I'll just grade them on a curve because none of them were really that smart. Because if I grade on a curve, then I'll slim that whole thing down. And so you think on the curve, I mean, I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm not Hitler. I'm kind of in the middle, which I don't know that we should be very proud of that. We are wretchedly and completely and sinfully lost. And no amount of good deeds will ever cover that fact. And no amount of comparison will ever cover that fact. And you need to come to grips with this because the, the, the failure that we have in our current culture, in our current society that wants to do away with God and do away with the Bible is that we believe that we are mistakers. I just made a mistake. I talked to somebody just this past week who did something that was awful. Hurt a bunch of people. I know that I made a mistake. No, you are completely sinfully lost. And that's the way we all are apart from Christ. We are not mistakers. We did just not have a bad day. I don't have just an issue. We are sinfully lost. Some people make this quote and this, this thing about hell and they get upset about hell and they and I get it, it sounds awful, it's terrible, and I don't want anybody to ever experience any of what hell is. And some people go to the far the extreme that it's eternal torment forever and ever, and other people say, no, no, it's just, it's, it's what the Bible refers to as outer darkness. Listen, either way, it can't be good. Can I get, like, either way. I'm hoping it's, but I mean, either way. It can't, it can't be good. And people will be like, but how can a loving God let anyone ever go to hell? You know what Isaiah thought? Isaiah thought, I don't know how a holy God would ever let anyone in. It's not that we're good enough to slip in and God ought to be okay with that. It's that in comparison, my sinful wretchedness compared to his glorious holiness, they are so far apart that it's not that God could let anybody go to heaven. Isaiah's sitting there thinking, I don't know how he ever lets anyone in. And in light of that, in light of the fact that God is incomprehensibly holy and glorious and that we are sinfully and completely lost, God does something weird 
Literally, he has an angel take a coal from the altars and go and touch the lips of Isaiah. And then he says these words. You, you're forgiven and your sins, you're made righteous and your sins are atoned for. Everybody say atoned. This word means covered. So wait, God's incomprehensibly holy and glorious. I'm clearly a a wreck. I'm ruined, I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips. But God, you've just made me righteous and you've atoned for my sins. Not because of anything that I've done, but simply because of something that you have done. And I want you to get this idea because it's in light of the glory of God and it's in light of the sinfulness of man that really what we find is number three. This is the big three. That the gospel is uniquely powerful. Think about it. The gospel is uniquely powerful. Everyone say gospel. This is not um, black people in robes singing music. Because I know how y'all are. I'd be like, that's gospel music. No, no. <laughs> Come on now. I used to listen to Fred Hammond. Gospel is not a music style. Gospel is a word from the Bible. What they did was is they took a word that was kind of common in their days. For example, if you look at historical documents, they'll talk about the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And what the gospel was this. It was this public widespread declaration of something awesome that had happened. So for example, when Caesar Augustus took the throne, they sent heralds or evangelists out because they didn't have Facebook. You couldn't post this stuff. They didn't have mass mailouts. They did Pony Express wasn't around even by then. I mean, like, like, so what they would do is they would send out heralds or evangelists, and they would go from literally town to town. This is why Jesus said, whatever you find, proclaim it from the rooftops. This is how they would travel and pass along information. You'd get up on a roof and just start yelling stuff because you didn't have other means of communication. And they would proclaim the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the gospel of whatever. And, and, and this is the gospel. The gospel is simply this. It is the life-changing news that Jesus has come, that he has died, and that he has risen again so that you might be reconciled to God. Let, let, me, let me read it like Paul wrote in 5, eight, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. If, if you have your Bible, check out this verse with me real quick here. Romans 5, 8 says this, is that God demonstrates his love for us in this. Like meaning this is how God showcased it all. Is that while we were still sinners, everybody say sinners. Not mistakers, not issuers, not problemers, not jacked up, not had a bad day. Sinners. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is the gospel. Let let me put it in this way. Is that even though God is incomprehensibly holy, and even though you are wretchedly sinful, you can be forgiven because of Jesus. That's the gospel. Is that your life can be changed. You can have hope. You can have meaning. You can have purpose. You can have a home in heaven. that, That you can have heaven on earth right now. That God has reconciled you so that you might be made righteous and your sins would be atoned for. This is, this is the gospel. Let, let, let me give you an example of what the, what the gospel kind of looks like. There's this story of an Englishman who bought a Rolls Royce. Now, if you buy a Rolls Royce, it's because you have lots of stupid money. Okay, There's money and then there's stupid money. If you buy a Rolls Royce, it's because you have stupid money. Or you're just really stupid. But you probably have stupid money. Stupid money. And what that means is that you can pay an absurd amount of money for a car just because you want to. And these cars are the most immaculate, wonderful cars that are being made. I mean, they, they're, they're made of gold and they talk to you. They'll cook you breakfast. I mean, they just do, they will do anything and everything. They, these are amazing cars. And you spend so much money for them and they advertise them and will sell them to you on the fact that this car will never, ever break. Now, I mean, that's, that's pretty dope, right? 
I don't know about the gold and make you breakfast, but it's, it's a dope car is my point. And the Englishman buys the car and he's driving it and sure enough, it breaks down. Well, he's out away from town. He's kind of in the middle of nowhere, but he pulls out his cell phone and he makes a call to Rolls Royce and says, hey, remember that car that you said would never, ever, ever break down? Well, it broke down and I'm stuck out here on the road. What are you going to do about it? They literally get a mechanic in a helicopter. They fly the man to the the Rolls Royce and have him on the spot fix the Rolls Royce. And the guy thinks to himself, I wonder what this is going to cost me. Can't be cheap to fly a mechanic out on a helicopter and have him come fix this thing. And so he's expecting a bill. And so he just, he waits a few weeks. He's thinking that, that's going to be a pricey bill. But I got stupid money, so what do I care? And so I made that part up. I don't know if he said that. But, but he's waiting for a bill. And a few weeks go by and he gets no bill. And so you know what he does? He's like, well, I just want to get this done and taken care of. I want it out of my hair. And so I'm going to call Rolls Royce. And they call, he calls Rolls Royce and he says, hey, I had an incident. You guys sent a mechanic out via helicopter and you, fix, you fixed my car. And you know what they said? They said, we're sorry, sir. We have no record of you ever having a problem with that car. Because Rolls Royce doesn't want that on their record. Yeah. <laughs> and see, when Jesus takes your sin... And the word atoned comes out. And it literally means you have been covered. It is as if it never happened. What's amazing is is that Isaiah is the one that's quoted over 90 times in the New Testament. He quotes more about the Messiah. He quotes more about Jesus than any other of the old prophets. And he goes on to quote why this happens in Isaiah 53. He says that your sinfulness, this is the power and the uniqueness of the gospel, is that all of your sinfulness... It didn't just vanish and poof and go away and God just do away with it. He had to place it on Jesus. And so it says that Jesus was bruised. He was punished. He was beaten. He was bloodied. That all of our sin didn't just disappear, but it had to go somewhere because sin just doesn't disappear. Someone has to pay. And it's not that it just went away. It's that Jesus paid it all. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And that's why Paul says this in Romans 1.16. He says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Listen to me. The gospel is the only thing. It is the hope of glory. It is the uniquely powerful. And it is the only thing that has the ability to take away your lost sinfulness so that you might stand in the presence of a holy God one day. That's it. And that's the beauty of the gospel is that it's been taken away, it's been atoned for, it's been covered, and it makes no sense why a God that holy would take a human being that wretched and somehow reconcile it. But he does it because that is the gospel of grace. And it is in light of this vision that God drops the million-dollar question. It is in light of the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the power of the gospel that he then drops this question. He says, whom shall I send and who will go for us. Now, I find that fascinating because it says, at first it's the singular and then it's the plural. It says, whom shall I send who will go for us? Everybody say, I. Everybody say, us. So we're like, uh, who's he talking to? Is there a frog in his pocket? Is that the Holy Trinity at conversation? Is he speaking to the angels? It's not really, really clear, but, but here's what we know. Is that in light of the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the power of the gospel, he drops this question. Now, what are you going to do about it? Whom will go and who Go on our behalf. Whom shall I send? And Isaiah steps up, and Isaiah becomes a prophet for some 50, 60 plus years. For the next several kings of Israel's history, he becomes a prophet to speak on behalf of God. Look at how the New Testament puts it. This is how Paul wrote it. It's a similar kind of idea. He says this in Romans chapter 10. He goes, how 
How then shall they call on Jesus in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him that they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? By the way, that didn't mean a guy that stands up on Sunday morning and teaches the Bible. That meant somebody who proclaims. Like an evangelist or a herald would go out into the areas and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. The idea that you can have a life for eternity. That you can be reconciled to God. That God is holy and that you are sinful. But Jesus has reconciled the two. That's the gospel. And so in light of all that, what will you do? I wrote it like this. It is not enough for me to hear the gospel of grace. It is a great tragedy to keep such a treasure all to myself. So it's in light of that. What will you do with that? What will you do with the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the beauty and the power of the gospel? What will you do with it? Because it is not enough for you to sit and be like thankful and sit and receive and and, and sit and enjoy. It is not enough, according to God, for just you to take the message and the power of the gospel and be like, man, isn't that awesome? I'm so glad I found that. It's not enough. He now wants you to take it and pass it on to someone else. Which is a fascinating thought. That, that Here's what you need to think about. You live in a generation, a time period in which a massive group of people will live. But every generation is responsible for spreading the gospel to that generation. It can happen no other way. So what will you do? And I don't even know what that looks like. Some of you are like, well, what do you mean, Todd? What do I do? I, I, I don't know totally. But, but it probably looks a lot like this. It probably begins with you taking people in your life who are away from God and genuinely praying for them. Like genuinely getting on your knees and saying, God, I lift up so-and-so. I lift them up to you. God. I pray that you would begin to move in their heart and move in their life and soften their heart and open up their mind, that you would begin to draw them and pull them and tug on their heart. God, do whatever it is that you do. I don't even know what you do exactly because I... I told you, if I knew what it was, I'd put it in the coffee. Everybody who came in would be addicted to Jesus. It would be like that. But you would pray and say, God, whatever it is that you do, I pray that you begin to do it. And and then it it moves from you being generous. It moves to you being kind. It moves to you maybe sharing your story and sharing your faith. It moves to you maybe inviting someone to church one day. Or I, I don't know how it all looks out. But it definitely begins with you taking the gospel of grace that you have received and somehow trying to make sure that every other person around you has the same chance and opportunity that you have so that one day they might recognize that God is incomprehensibly glorious and holy. And I'm sinfully lost. And Jesus has reconciled the two so that I might be right with God and my sins would be forgiven. What do you need to do with that message? Who is it that you need to talk to, to pray for, to share your faith, to invite to church? I don't know what that looks like for you. But, but you know, we were, we were at Bible study on, on Thursday night and, and we, we, we all came up to this conclusion, this is what the lesson was really all about, is that at the end, I need to do what only I can do, and then I will trust God to do what only God can do. I don't change people's hearts, but doggone it, I can give them the message, and I can give them the invitation, and I can compel them as to the best of my ability, and I can share my story, and I can do whatever it is that I can do, and I'll trust God to do whatever it is that he can do. Whom shall I send? What will you do with the gospel? If you would bow your heads and close your eyes. It is not a light thing to be aware of the holiness of God, the greatness of God, the wonder of God. I pray that you walk out of this place and you don't take that lightly. 
Because sometimes as believers, we can, we can begin to so cheapen the grace of God. We can take the holiness of God and disregard it to our own immorality or our own poor decisions, our own foolishness, our own sinfulness. And I pray that if you're in here today and you're a believer, that you don't take the holiness of God for granted. That you would remember that when you think about the commands of God. That it's not, listen, it's not that he has great suggestions. It's that he knows all things. And he wants you to trust him. That's what faith is. He wants you to trust him with all of your life. Your dating life, your money life, your, 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 your work life, your marriage life, your parenting life, all of your life. He wants you to trust him. I pray that you, you get a glimpse that apart from him, God, we are sinfully lost. And I am so thankful and so grateful for what Jesus has done for me. And that incredible message is not just for me and me alone. It would be a tragedy to hoard that and keep that all to myself. God, give me the courage. God, give me the boldness. Give me the wisdom to take that message to the people around me, to my friends, my neighbors, my family, my coworkers, whoever it is that you've put in my life. God, help me to do everything that I can do. And God, I'll trust you to do what only you can do. And so God, help me to walk out of this place I haven't had this vision like Isaiah has, but God, I pray that you would give me those same glimpses, those same visions, those same ideas. Let them penetrate my heart, God. Help me to be always aware, God, that you are holy and glorious and that your gospel is powerful. Lord, help me to walk out of that and carry that in my mind and my heart every day and everywhere that I go. Father, that is my prayer in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Yeah. Thanks again for listening to the New Beginnings Podcast. For more information on New Beginnings Church, please visit us online at nbchurch.tv.